Hi again, everybody. George Gandalf here with another podcast. Today, I'm honored to be interviewing Dr. Thomas Lee, who is Chief Medical Officer for Press Gaining. And uh, my good friend, Dr. Uh, Jim Merlino, suggested we talk. And Dr. Lee has a new book out that's out called Epidemic of Empathy in Healthcare, How to Deliver Compassionate, Connected to Patient Care that Creates a Competitive Advantage. Welcome, Tom. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. So, Tom, tell us about uh, your background and, um, you know, why did you write this book? Well, you know, I'm 62 years old, and I, you know, I graduated from medical school in 1979, and I, I majored in history of science when I was in college, and so like that sort of big picture about what's happening, uh, you know, I sort of, you know, that was important to me way back then, and you know, so I trained in medicine and cardiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and I've been a physician. I'm still a physician part-time. I, I do primary care at the Brigham every Friday, and I've got my 250 or so patients, and two of them are over 100, and 20, 25 of them are over 85, So, uh, and wow. I'm not a geriatrician. So I'm like taking care of uh, real-world patients, and I understand what it means to be taking care of people like your mother for whom you know, frailty is the issue. You know, when, when you know, um, my friend Atul Gawande, you know, you know, he points out that, you know, we're the first people in history for whom frailty has become something routine. And so when, when that happens, you know, you have to actually start thinking about, okay, what are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? And um, so besides the fact that I was seeing taking care of, of patients and seeing what they were going through, um, I also ended up in a senior management role at Partners Healthcare System where I was in charge of the network and we were negotiating contracts and and then trying to live up to the contracts and and as as you know as, as I got involved in all the money changing hands in healthcare uh you know that raises the question of what are we actually trying to do here what are, you know what's the goal and you know it it's got to be something more than just doing as much as possible to make as much money as possible uh, because, you know, and trust that we're good people doing good things. Um, you know, Massachusetts, we had health care reform earlier. And so, you know, people on the payer side and fire side actually started to have discussions about what's the goal here? What are, what, what are we actually trying to do? So uh, that took me down a road to be working with Michael Porter at Harvard Business School and writing things and, and doing work to try to – Organize care around meeting patients' needs. You know, recognizing that the big picture, you know, the megatrend of history is tremendous progress. So much more that we can do. You know, doctors with narrower, and narrower focuses, and everyone focus focusing on doing what they what they do, and forgetting about the fact that like your mother is in the hallway and she's cold. You know, and that we're supposed to be taking care of your mother. Um, so understanding that we have to you know, do something to counter the side effects of progress and organize clinicians to take care of people, you know, to look at them and, and recognize this is what's going on with this person and address those needs, uh, that, that's what took me to – you know, ultimately doing the work I'm, I'm I, I I did a partners doing the work I'm doing Prescani writing this book is because you know there are these forces that work against 
taking care of the individual against empathy because of medical progress. And so we we need to actually make it an explicit focus in the business of healthcare, you know, organize to get at it and try to help individual clinicians, you know, do it. So I, I sort of, really, you know, come at this issue from like a business perspective, from a doctor perspective, from a historian perspective. Uh, so that's a little bit of babbling, but I hope I hope it kind of hangs together. Give us a sense of uh, your current role at Prescani as chief medical officer, but especially tell us about that title, Epidemic of Empathy in Healthcare. Well, I've got I've got a fantastic job. I mean, my my major responsibility is to try to understand what patients are going through, understand what clinicians are going through, understand the big picture of healthcare, and try to help figure out what's the right direction to go in. Like, how can we make healthcare better? How can we make it affordable? Uh, how do we make the healthcare system work? And then try to help Prescani figure out how we can help patients and clinicians and hospitals uh, succeed in the environment that we have. I mean, the economic pressures on, on healthcare are real. We all know that. We talk about money all the time, but we know that healthcare can't be just about money. Uh, you know, and if we, if we just, you know, reduce the price of everything by one third, we'd have cheaper healthcare, but we, we need something more than cutting out waste. We need, we actually need to make it better, we need to have, and that's why you know I, I think competition on value is the right framework for the healthcare system. Now, now the title of the book, you know, an epidemic of empathy, uh, which was actually suggested by my wife, uh, uh, was because you know we're both really you know admirers of social network science and the work of Nicholas Christakis in particular. And he's the guy who showed that values can spread from person to person to person uh, in the same patterns as infectious diseases can, can spread. He's the guy who showed in the Framingham study that obesity spreads from person to person so that if a friend of a friend of yours gains weight, you're more likely to gain weight even if you don't know the friend who gained weight because Norms are developing around us when we don't even realize it. Now, some of those values that can spread can be bad values, you know, uh, racism, anti-Semitism, uh, but good values can spread too. Altruism can spread, for example. Nicholas has shown that in his research. What we think we need in healthcare, when I say we, I mean my wife, me, Prescani, uh, what we think we need is an epidemic of empathy. Uh, we need that core value of we're going to deliver care that's empathic and coordinated. We need that, that basic ego identity value to be spreading from person to person, to be a social norm so that you can't look at yourself in the mirror if you're not doing it. So that's where the term epidemic comes from. It's from social network science. One of the things to our listeners that um, I think most of our listeners are doctors uh, and um, executives within healthcare, but uh, certainly to the public, they may be a little confused about the whole idea of empathy and uh, not really understand fully this issue of, you know, how important empathy is and what's going on. I guess my question is, how do you feel that 
you know, how do we get here to where we're even this is an issue? I mean, where did U.S. healthcare go awry when it comes to empathy? Well, you know, and it's not a U.S. healthcare problem; it's the entire world because it's medical progress that has been driving this, where there's just so much more we can do. And it takes so many more people to deliver state-of-the-science care, and those people have narrower and narrower focuses. You know, one of the jokes that uh, you know, one of my colleagues makes is that there's so much knowledge today in healthcare that you've got a choice between knowing more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing, or you can know less and less about more and more until you know nothing about everything. That's the way it feels to be a doctor a lot of the time these days, and it doesn't feel that great. Uh, there isn't necessarily anyone who's trying to tie it all together. Um, I think that because of this medical progress, uh, you know, we've reached a crisis point where it doesn't feel good to patients and it doesn't feel good to clinicians either. It feels chaotic to both. And that's why I think healthcare is beginning the work of reorganizing itself around meeting the needs of patients. And what that means is not just being nicer or something like that. It means that we actually organize teams and the teams are really geared to taking care of people as opposed to every individual just doing the thing that they do. I've talked in the past on some of these interviews about primary care. And in my opinion, it's almost become an impossible job because <laughs> You have to know everything about everything, just like we discussed. And you, it's you know, no matter how smart you are and how much information you can retain, uh, you can't be responsible to know everything. And uh, but that's the standard that you're often held, and that's got to be overwhelming. And then you mentioned as well the um, the specialization and subspecialization and sub subspecialization. So I think that's really pertinent. Um, let's talk about the teams you just mentioned, which I think was another fascinating. Um, topic in the book, and uh, you shared some examples in the book as well about you know teams that are working and teams that are not. I thought the um, you might want to expand upon that a little bit. Uh, actually, one thing I will say about primary care is that, and and the rest of medicine is that there's so much knowledge today that no one can be all knowing anymore. That used to be the goal, but even if you can't be all knowing, you can be all caring. And that is really what our patients are hoping for, that we're going to be looking at them, grasping their issues, and doing what we can uh, to take them on. Now, I actually think that that's better done with a team that's focused on the patient than a bunch of individuals who are you know, going to try to ride the occasion on a hit-or-miss basis. Uh, I think that you know, a decade or so ago, I think a lot of physicians thought a team is a bunch of people who do what I say to do, uh, and they extend my ability to get done what I do. Uh, that's not really what a team is. And I would say a few years ago, five years ago, I, I might have said a team is a multidisciplinary group, you know, nurses, pharmacists, doctors, and they've got clear job descriptions and everyone is working at the top of their license and so they're efficient and everything gets done. And that's a step in the right direction, but that's not what a real team is. It's, this has been dawning on a lot of us who are really trying to organize around patients in the last couple of years. You know, a real team is 
you know, a real team. It's a group of people who, you know, they will do what it takes to meet the needs of patients. You know, they're adaptable. They're, they're resilient. You know, this is why I've been so interested in this book, Team of Teams, written based about on military teams by General Stanley McChrystal. Uh, you know, like these Navy SEALs, you know, they're, they go off together, and what makes them great teams is the loyalty they have to each other. So, like, in a real team, you want to do a good job because you would never want to disappoint the people that you're working with. And you do whatever it takes to take care of patients because you're very much driven by the respect that your colleagues have for you. That's one of the big things that I'm focused on these days, which is you know burnout in medicine. I mean, medicine, there's so many more people involved. Medicine, ironically, medicine's gotten kind of lonely because there are all these people rushing around, but you're not necessarily interacting with other colleagues the way in the old days you you know you would sit around the cafeteria and, and really have real relationships. But we need teams where you care what they think, they care what you think, and those kind of teams organized around groups of patients, those are the happiest people I see in medicine these days, and they are delivering the very best and the most efficient care as well. You know, one of the examples you thought that you may want to discuss the anecdote now about the patient who called her team of doctors together and said, I'm not the problem, you guys are. This is a woman, and I have her permission to use her name, Suzanne House, and she, you know, she's a fantastic uh, uh, woman who's, uh, you know, a tr an attorney. Uh, her, her husband passed away at my hospital, the Brigham, from uh, lymphoma. Um, you know, a few years ago, and after like six years of, you know, treatment, remission, and so on. Uh, his final admission was a six-week hospitalization, most of it in the ICU, uh, where his lungs were largely whited out, and, you know, it was not clear, is it lymphoma in his lungs? Is it uh, fungal infection in his lungs? It was probably both. But, you know, the patient and her family and the family, they were all trying to do everything they could. They, you know, there's three young children. This is a young couple. They were writing down everything that everyone was saying. And, and the things, they were probably all true, but they seemed not quite in sync to the patient. Like one, you know, one would say, you know, it really looks hopeless. Another would say, We've got the right drugs now, uh, and you know it probably was hopeless all along. But they probably did have the right drugs, but it was chaotic and scary for the patient and his wife and for the rest of the family. Finally, what you know, Mrs. House said to the nurse that the family was scared, and the nurse said, "We need a family meeting," and they called a meeting, and she got like the you know eight different physicians involved in the care in the room and said, look, I'm calling this meeting not because the family needs it, but we think you need it. You know, because you guys are not saying the same things to us and it's scaring us. And so they went around the room and each doctor said what he thought or she thought was going on. And then they sort of worked out little differences in their interpretations. But you know, it was a very rational set of not quite being in sync statements by the clinicians.
but the fear that the patient and the patient's family had, that was rational too. So that's an amazing way to, I think, to illustrate the whole idea of teams, uh, to know that everybody is on the same page and we're talking about the same things. Um, so excellent. Uh, well, you mentioned a little while ago talking about embracing you know, value and competition. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on, on that concept? Well, you know, I have um, – uh, I think that we – okay, well, the first part is relatively easy, although it's still a leap for most of healthcare, which is we have to organize around value by trying to meet patients' needs as efficiently as we can. I mean, that is a break from the past because, you know, in the past what we've organized around was doing as much as we could do. and. Uh, I don't think it's because we were bad people. You know, we were only doing things that we thought were good for the most part. But there was a sense of the more we do, you know, the better. And that's what a lot of business plans for hospitals and practices are based upon. But obviously, that that's run run into trouble. It's run into trouble both because there are not unlimited resources in society. And it's also run the trouble because of the aging of the population. The patients, like your 94-year-old mother, my two patients over 100, and my you know 10% of patients over 85 years old. Um, the goal for these patients has to be, you know, thought about and talked about. We just can't assume that if something is supported by randomized controlled trials, we should be doing it, and we should be doing as much of it as possible. You know, the, the the statistic that really got me uh, a few years ago was seeing that nine it's 8.5% of Medicare patients have surgery in the last week of their lives. Now, a lot of times we don't know that they're dying, uh, but a lot of times we do. And if we really were thinking about what we're doing – would we want the last few days of a patient's life to be recovering from a surgical wound? I think most of us would not want that, and, and, and we would probably be practicing differently if we were stopping and thinking. So really sort of organizing around thinking about what do patients need, trying to meet those needs, and the trying to deliver it, deliver that care as efficiently as possible I think that's the right thing for healthcare. Now, the reason I think competition is so important is because the alternatives to competition are bad for healthcare. You know, if we don't have competition in healthcare, then ultimately, you know, we're going to get, you know, regulation. Uh, you know, if we have monopolies that can fight off uh, competition, then, you know, ultimately society and government have very little choice except to step in and, you know, do rate regulation and all sorts of other things, which I think will not drive improvement and I think will ultimately be bad for care. I think, you know, what competition does is when, when providers are competing to deliver the best care and deliver it as efficiently as possible, that drives creativity and it drives improvement. Now, competition is nerve-wracking. You know, it sort of makes your stomach churn. I mean, you don't have real competition unless there's fear. You know, fear that if you if you lose, you might, you know, go out of business. And I actually think, you know, as unpleasant as it sounds, I think that we do our best work when we're 
when the stakes are high. And um, I think a charismatic, forward-looking leader can get his or her colleagues to do some things, but you know, fear that you might lose business to someone else because they're doing a better job or doing it more efficiently, I think that really gets my colleagues, you know, to do things that otherwise they would they would be like coming up with reasons not to do. Um, so I do think a, a competition-driven marketplace, you know, where you know patients are picking their cl- their 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 clinicians, where they dock with healthcare on the basis of what they can afford and who's doing a good job. And then those clinicians are picking where patients get hospitalized and get specialty and get specialty care based upon value. Again, same kind of things, price and quality. I think that's the right driver for healthcare, particularly compared to the alternatives. One of the things that you brought up in your book, uh, which I thought was intriguing, was the whole idea of suffering and uh, making that a priority. And I guess uh, I'd like you to talk about that maybe, but also, you know, you had some additional insights about what really, what really matters to patients. And you touched on the pun that a moment ago with the whole idea of surgery during the last week of life. But, you know, it's what the surveys I've seen have been very interesting, what patients say what matters versus what clinicians would presume matters. So I thought maybe you'd like to expand upon that a little bit. Well, you know, the idea of um, suffering as being something that was important to focus on, uh, that was raised for me when, you know, Pat Ryan, the CEO of Press Ganey, you know, he came to me in March of 2013 to talk to me about would I make a move from my management job at Partners Healthcare to to Press Ganey. And he startled me because he said that, uh, you know, Press Ganey, you know, didn't want to just be another company doing surveys because, you know, anyone can do that. Uh, They wanted to be successful by helping their clients reduce suffering and and therefore be successful because they would have more market share. Uh, And uh, and so I was startled when he said it because I, I said to him, you know, we don't use that word suffering very much in healthcare. And, uh, and, I, I, and when I talked about it with some of my colleagues at the New England Journal of Medicine, they agreed that they didn't use the word suffering. It just seemed overly emotional and it made you feel guilty and so on. But then as we talked about it more, I began to think, well, maybe that's the reason to use it because there is suffering going on. And the, the word suffering is such – a shocking word. You know, none of us want to think of ourselves as someone who would stand by while patients were suffering. You know, we may need that kind of like, you know, slap in the face or bucket of water poured over our head saying to to like keep us from focusing on doing what we think of as our jobs to like look at the patient and go, "Oh my god, they're they're suffering." And and um and and get ready to go beyond our job and do whatever it takes. I mean, I actually think that um, you know there is this great Simon Sinek TED Talk, S-I-N-E-K. It's the third most commonly seen TED Talk uh, since TED Talk started, and it's a, and and he talks about how you know there there you know there are three questions. There's why, and there's how, and there's what, and you know he draws three concentric circles. And he says most people are focusing on the what, what it is that they're supposed to do, and some of them get at the how, which is how they're going to be different. But when we've talked about this with my colleagues and I at Prescani and you know and elsewhere in healthcare, you know I, we actually feel like 
you know, as Senec advises, is that we have to start with the why. You know, what it, you know, why do we exist? You know, what is our purpose? Um, because the what's are always going to be messy and imperfect and problematic. So you need a clear why. And, and I think that the why for all of us in healthcare, certainly for my colleagues and I, Prescani, you know, the why is we're here to reduce the suffering of patients, not just the pain, but the fear and the anxiety and the confusion. And then the how, you know, I think, you know, the how is we, we, we need patients to feel that their care is empathic, that we care for them and that it's coordinated and that it's safe and we're not going to hurt them. And then the what is, well, that's the detail. I mean, that's, there's a whole, all this stuff about, you know, actually assessing their pain and assessing, you know, whether, you know, their, their gaps in quality and so on. Um, the thing I found is that, like, my colleagues in, on the clinical side, we tend to think of when we, we take it for granted, on the, the, we take empathy for granted because we know we're good people who are trying hard, and we tend to focus on, you know, technical quality. Are we giving evidence-based medicine reliably? Patients, on the other hand, they take the technical stuff for granted, and they're wondering, does anyone care about them? And the truth is we need them both. Uh, you know, we need the technical excellence, and we need the caring. And the truth of the matter is we do really pretty darn well on the technical stuff. We're a bit more hit or, hit or miss on the caring behavior stuff. And that's why, that's why I wrote this book, and that's why uh, my colleagues and I are doing the work we do. Excellent. We're almost out of time. Uh, so one of the uh, things, obviously, that we'd recommend our listeners do is you know, buy the book. It's a, it's a terrific book, by the way. And um, one of the things I thought was great about it, and you've done this on the interview as well, is that obviously you're well-read and you're re looking for ideas from many, many different sources. And I think that really adds to the richness of the book. It's the, and that's where thought leadership comes from is, you know, not just sort of looking at things in a vacuum, but see what else others have to say and then forming, I guess, a model of how this stuff all fits together. So for our listeners, I recommend you, you uh, march out and buy the book. It's available on Amazon. And, um, uh, but the last question I would have in addition to that is, uh, how will this all come together? What can we do? Uh, I guess maybe a better question is, you know, so our listeners are excited about this topic. What are the, you know, top couple things they can do now to start making a difference? Well, you know, I think that, uh, I, you know, and I, I, I think that understanding that patients are the focus of healthcare and the real goal of, the work my colleagues and I do at Prescani is not to like classify doctors as good or bad, uh, but is try to create a context when, such that the next patient you see, is you know you look at them and you imagine what life feels like for them, and you try to address, you you try to be the kind of physician that they're hoping for when they come in. This is what we do for our friends. This is what we do for the relatives of our, our buddies. You know, we, we don't try to dot I's and cross T's. We try to be the kind of clinician that they're hoping for. And then the other thing I would say to close is we have to recognize that it's a team sport today and coordinating with your colleagues, you know, really being a team, helping them out, saying the same thing the patients that they're saying, you know, actually going into the room with the nurse, with the physical therapist, 
so they actually know we are a team. Uh, you know, you don't have to worry about miscommunication. Uh, you know, working on the team sport aspects of healthcare, that would be the other thing that I would emphasize. So compassion and coordination. Excellent. Uh, the book, again, is Epidemic of Empathy in Healthcare, How to Deliver Compassionate, Connected Patient Care that Creates a Competitive Advantage. Uh, Doctor, That book is by Dr. Thomas Lee. Tom, you were great, uh, just as I expected. It's been great discussing uh, these, these issues today. Again, I, I loved your book. I thought it was very well written, well researched, and insightful, which is what, else, what more could you ask for? So thank you for uh, participating in our interview today. My great pleasure. Thanks so much. 